All right, good evening, everyone. So uh, we are starting the next lesson, which uh, is the Crusades. Um, this is one of my favorite uh, periods of church history, not for what goes right. I mean, it's it's actually a pretty sad time, but, you know, being a history guy, war is fascinating to me, and we get to talk about a, a very interesting set of wars. So we'll be talking about the Crusades. This is part one. There will be a part two that we'll hit next time. Um, but really just uh, moving straight into it, um, the word crusade. What's this? Because we use this word a lot today, like we're on an evangelistic crusade. Well, the word crusade comes from the word cross, but literally it speaks of a military endeavor in the name of the cross. So in the name of the cross, with our sword in our hand, um, we're going to go spread Christianity the way that the Muslims spread Islam. Um, so crusade is, 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 yeah, I mean, I understand we use the word differently today, but that is what it, what it meant back then. Now, there was a lot of causes of the crusades. Um, this is a, a period of Christian history that often gets romanticized in the West. You know, we're like, ah, oh, knights and chivalry and swords and honor, you know, and all this kind of cool stuff. But it was tragic. I mean, it really was. Um, now, we're only going to get through the first crusade today. And the first crusade does end with the victory of Western Christendom. We, you know, the Christians win. They take Jerusalem. Uh, they're going to control most of Asia Minor, um, all of what is called Palestine at that time. Uh, there's going to be four distinct Latin Christian kingdoms that get set up in that part of the world. And this is going to last for some time. Furthermore, the first crusade is going to open the door for subsequent uh, crusades over the next 200 years. And so, again, we'll be talking about the first one this time, then we'll cover all the other ones next time. But anyhow, with that said, let's uh, put the crusades in the proper context. There's going to be a little bit of background information I'll be giving first before we actually get into how this all goes down. Um, but just how do we talk about this, right? Because, um, one, the secular world uses the Crusades as an argument against Christianity. I mean, look at the evil that the Christians did in the Crusades. And then the Muslims make it sound like, here we were, just minding our own business. And then these Christians show up and start killing us, right? And so we got to put this in its right context. The Christian world was attacked by Muslims first. And Christianity had the territory it had, not through conquest. The Roman Empire conquered, and then the Christian church conquered the Roman Empire with words. You know, they didn't conquer them with the sword. So you have this previous pagan empire that becomes Christian. Those were Christian lands. Well, then Islam gets its start. And what does Islam do? Islam starts trying to conquer everything. In fact, they take advantage of, of the vacuums created by the Byzantine Empire when they defeated the Persians. That made it easy for the Muslims to move up into Persia and all the way to India. And then uh, as the Byzantines were, were weakening, it made it easier for them to... Um, you know, push that way. So the bottom line is the Muslims, in a sense, they threw the first punch. They did. Turkey, North Africa, the Holy Land, all belonged to Christians prior to the Islamic invasions. And the Muslims did not take these lands through persuasive word or speech, but through jihad. It was through the sword. That's how they did it. Uh, and they would have kept going. They would have tried to take all of Europe and wipe Christianity out, but they were stopped at the Battle of Tours by Charles Martel, as uh, I've mentioned two times already. Now, these Christian attacks then 
in the Crusades were a response to the previous Muslim attacks. The forcing of Christian lands to be Muslim was a great offense to Christians. And the reason why Muslims have no room to talk is because they're offended that the Christians took the land back. How dare you take Muslim land? That's wrong. Well, was it wrong for you to take Christian land? No, because we're Muslim. We're allowed to take your land. But nobody could take your land. No, because we're Muslim. Right? It's very, very inconsistent. It's hypocritical. They act as if this could only happen one way. And they have a theological position where they believe that since they are the, uh, since Muhammad's the seal of the prophets, Islam's supposed to be the final religion. It's the capstone. And if it is, then it can only advance. It can't retreat. So to them, Islam can't lose. So whenever they put a flag over the land, in their theology, it's technically impossible for them to lose that land because then that proves Islam to be false. It's not the final one. So the fact that Christians took all that land back um, was a big, I guess you could say, it was a big kick to the teeth of one of Islam's chief claims that it's going to win. It can't be beaten. Once it, it moves, it keeps moving. It doesn't retreat. Well, they retreated. Um, and this is one of the reasons why the Muslim world will not accept Israel. Because even though it used to belong to the Jews and then it belonged to the Christians, once the Muslims took it and had it for all that time, they say, it's ours. We don't care if the Jews have been running it and ruling it since 1948 and have made it a beautiful oasis and it was a dump when we had it, but look what they've done with it. You know, doesn't matter. It's ours. And we want them gone. We're going to cleanse Israel from the river to the sea. And when you hear these young Gen Z progressives chanting, from the river to the sea, you know, college campuses, they're calling for genocide. Kill all the Jews. River to the sea means every Jew from the Euphrates River to the Mediterranean Sea is to be driven into the sea and removed. Um, so, yes, genocide is being promoted on our campuses, which is weird because these progressives aren't Muslims. But they join this chant because they're seeing it in view of critical theory. Well, well, the Palestinians are oppressed and Israel's, Israelis are oppressors. So, yes, river to the sea. Not realizing the reason why these guys are saying river to the sea is this blatant hypocritical theological position that once we conquer something, it's ours forever. So, again... A lot more I could say on that, but uh, one more thing to say on this. You know, being, in, being an army chaplain and um, my whole time in until recently was in the context of the global war on terror, the GWAT. And who have we been fighting? Where have we been fighting? The Middle East. Just to let you know, they respond to us and refer to our soldiers as crusaders. Think about it. A thousand years later, we're crusaders. Why? Because anytime warriors come from the West, they now, they view history through this paradigm. Anytime somebody attacks Muslim lands from the West, A, we're assuming they're a Christian. You know, they assume everybody in the West is Christian, even though it's highly secular and very few are Christians. They're like, nope, that's Christianity, and they're coming over here fighting on our land. They're crusaders. So this is just another crusade. Those stinking Western Christians have never dropped the crusader mentality. And, of course, whether you agree or disagree with the war on terror and all that, it has zero in common with the crusades. It wasn't a holy quest to retake land that the Muslims took from Christians. On, on one hand, the invasion of, of Afghanistan was revenge for 9-11. We're going to get bin Laden, the Taliban's sheltering him. So if you're with him, then you're going to 
You're going to feel it, buddy. And they did feel it until we left. And then we felt it. Well, any, anyhow. Um, now, Iraq, that one is something that, that people dispute. But the point is, it all has nothing to do with, uh, with the Crusades. So just wanted to throw that out there because if you ever do find yourself engaging folks from that religion, you may have to talk about this. Um, now, the causes of the crusade, the original intent was to remove Jerusalem from the hands of the Muslims. In that sense, it was a holy war. The goal wasn't to convert Muslims. The goal was just to get, you know, that land back into the hands of the Christians. Jerusalem was the holiest site for both Jews and Christians, but it's only the third holiest site for Islam. And you should remember from the Muslim lesson I taught you, their holiest site's Mecca. They got their Kaaba there. Second holiest site is Medina. And then the third holiest site is Jerusalem. But for Christians and Jews, Jerusalem's number one. Um, and so, of course, the Dome of the Rock, which that's my picture that I took. That's where I was, I was standing there. But anyway, uh, the Dome of the Rock um, stands on the site where Solomon's temple was. So anyhow, in one sense, the first cause of the Crusades is the Muslims previously conquered this holy site, and the Christians wanted it back. And, and of course, if you look at those pictures, you also have the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the second picture. That's for Christians, at least Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, it was believed because of Constantine's mom that that's where Jesus was crucified and then buried all within that building's complex. Um, and so that's going to be one of the holiest pieces of real estate in the Christian world back then, and it was under the control, uh, political control of the Muslims. Now, uh, another cause to keep in mind was that it, it had a lot to do with pilgrimages. This is going to be one of the, the big driving forces. Because Christians believed in relics, because Christians believed that this is the land Jesus walked, his feet were here. And so that sanctifies this whole country. And so even if the Muslims have it, we want to go visit. We believe there's special grace to be attained just by going there. And so every year people went to the Holy Land on these pilgrimages to find relics. Um, now, the East didn't so much care about reclaiming it. As the Byzantines are like, just as long as our people are allowed to go there. But the West was thinking, you know, we want to go there, and we do go there, our pilgrims, but it sure would be great if we reclaimed this for Christ. They talked about it for a long time, but there had to be a driving factor to get them to, uh, to move towards that end. And the driving factor is when the, the Seljuk Turks uh, really took over the Islamic world. Now, the Turks were a, a Central Asiatic people, like right in between Europe and Asia, that moved into the Middle East, moved into Asia Minor. They took over. They defeated the Muslims, um, the Arabs and, and that were there, but then they converted to Islam. So it was just the handing of, of power from one group to another, but they were still Islamic. When the Arabs were in control, they were okay with the pilgrimages because they can make money off of it. They're like, okay, you could go to all these holy sites, but you got to pay us to travel our lands. Christians would do it. You know, didn't like doing it, but hey, if this is what it takes. When the, Shel when the Seljuks, uh, the Turks took over, they're like, we're not letting you do pilgrimages anymore. One, we don't need your money. Two, we don't want your Christian feet walking on our lands. And then three, just to make it clear that they don't want Christians coming over, they started destroying Christian artifacts. And so that is going to be one of the big driving things um, that's going to make the Western Christians say, all right, we need to go over there. We need to take this stuff back by force. 
Um, and again, as I said, various popes and knights were talking about it for a long time. Um, so for something like this to happen, because again, this has been spoken of for a long time, why did it take till the end of the 11th century? Well, there were some prerequisites, you know, when you have the gods wreaking havoc in Europe, you know, you're not going to be able to go and attack the East. Once you got the gods on your side and you're building new Christianized European nations under Charlemagne, that's great. But then the Vikings come and the Vikings wreak havoc for a while. Now, once you got the Vikings on your side um, and you've got the really these these European states as we know them today, then now now we can talk. And this is where we're at um, by the time you get to the, the ten hundreds. So first, the Christians needed a great sea power, a naval power that could help get troops there by sea. And also the big thing is supply lines. Um, I'm not going to try to nerd out too much on you with with military stuff, Um, but this just happens to be something that I know about. And wars require logistics. Logistics is not just a different way to say logic, okay? I used to know a guy who confused it and thought he was saying logical when he was saying logistical. I'm like... It was like uh, Princess Bride, that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. Logistics is how do you move food, supplies, sanitation to meet the needs of your invading force? Because you might say, I got 50,000 soldiers. Great. What are they going to eat? Because, you know, you get them out there two weeks with no food. You now have 50,000 weak and dying people that um, even a group of cheerleaders is going to be able to come and beat them once they're starving. You know, so logistics is an important part. Navies are crucial for logistics. There has to be a, a line of ships that's constantly bringing food, supplies, replacement weapons, all that kind of stuff. And that can transport in a much faster way uh, replacement soldiers. And so... The Normans provided that. The Vikings, how did they get to Europe? How did they get to England? How did they get to North America? These were naval people, and they were fierce warriors as well. So that's, that's a big piece of it. And then a second need was a land power that was closer in proximity to Muslim lands. That way, you, could even, you don't have to rely as much on the sea, at least, to get large armies. Because, you know, their boats weren't huge back then. It wasn't like, you know, World War II where we're fitting hundreds, if not thousands, on each ship that we're sending to Europe. These are smaller, smaller boats. And if we're trying to move 30, 40, 50,000 knights, um, if there could be a big chunk of land close to Turkey, great. And we got that. Uh, I, I told you how the Magyars... Um, there's a group, another Central Asiatic people. They took over what we call Hungary. Eventually, they converted to Christianity. And Hungary brings you straight through the Balkans. You're almost right there um, near Turkey. So there's a big land route to get there as well um, without having to engage the enemy too early. You can engage them like right when you need to. Uh, it, it's also worth noting at this time that it was believed that the Muslims were defeatable at this time. And just to... to tell you what I'm show you what I'm talking about here the Spanish began the slow reconquest of Spain from the Moors remember the Moors took over Spain they controlled it for 700 years but under Ferdinand the first of Castile his reign dates 1035 to 1065 he started waging a war against the Muslims and started pushing them back now it's going to take 400 years but bit by bit Spanish are winning And so the Muslims can be beaten. And then the Normans, and I mentioned this last week, uh, the Normans took some land from the Pope, but they also pushed down into the Mediterranean and conquered Sicily. Sicily was under the control of the Muslims. 
the, the papal powers couldn't get them out of there. The Vikings did. And these were Christian Vikings at this point. Now, this was in a 30-year period between 1060 and 1090. Now, look at these dates. If we go to the end of Ferdinand's dates, 1065, if we go to the end of the uh, uh, liberation of Sicily, 1090, the crusade starts in 1097 or 1096, 1096. So these victories over the Muslims, in conjunction with the fact that we have a navy and we have a, a closer landmass to them and we can beat them. We're proving we could beat them. That's the Christian mindset at this point. And that's one reason it's going to happen now at this point. Now, before we get into what brings us to this, I do want to talk really, well, it's not going to be quickly, but I want to talk first about the, because just look how many words are on this slide. I I want to talk about the theology of Christian violence, um, because this is a war of Christians at least in name, against Muslims. And so um, is there a theology that can direct and lead Christian violence? And you might say, well, Christian violence, is, isn't that an oxymoron? Not necessarily, right? And so um, let me tell you the three possible views. And Augustine is going to give us what I think is the right view, the view that America uses as well. Uh, but one view is the militaristic view. Kill them all, let God sort them out, you know. And then they would go quick to Old Testament passages where we just, you know, the Israelites took over the land of Canaan. Uh, I don't think in the New Covenant that's what we're supposed to be doing. And there was only specific people in the Old Covenant they were told to do that to. Second view is the uh, pacifistic view, which you'll find among Anabaptists today, that we follow the Prince of Peace. We should never fight under any circumstances. Paul told us our warfare is spiritual. Jesus carried no sword. He didn't tell us to carry any swords. And if you do talk to Anabaptists, like Mennonites and German Baptists and stuff like that, they'll tell you even if somebody breaks into their house and is like murdering their kids, they can't fight back. And I'm like, that's just crazy. You, You guys are totally missing the the point, like the holistic picture of what Scripture teaches on this. And then you have what I think is the right position, which Augustine um, articulated for us, and of course, war experts and, you know, experts in geopolitics have been building on this ever since. It's more complicated now than it ever was then, but it's called the just war tradition or just war theory. And so just war is broken into three phases. Well, first, let me define it. War should not be entered into for conquest or land or possessions. You do not do war just because you're greedy. It should only be entered when it is just. And it's only just when going to war is better than not going to war. So, for example, is it better to let Hitler conquer the world and kill all the Jews and everything he's going to do? Is it better for that? Or is it better for us to fight, even though we might lose millions of people, even though we might kill millions of them? What would be worse, just letting Hitler win or us fighting? In a case like that, yeah, war sucks, but the world will be way worse off if we don't go. So a just war is a war where going to war is better than not going to war. You get what I'm saying? And so you have to do a lot of moral calculations to figure out if that's the case. And and so if the results for the residents of an area are worse by not going to war than by going to war, then the war is going to be just. Now, in the just war tradition, it's broken into three phases. The first, I'm going to spit some Latin at you, is uh, jus ad bellum, which is justice 
before the war, like, you know, justice to go into the war. Um, so these are specific principles of what has to be in place for you to legitimately go to war. So the first thing is just cause. There must be a just and proper reason for going to war. Now, some of the justifiable reasons, just to put this back up there, some of the justifiable reasons include self-defense. If somebody attacks you, it makes sense to go to war. You know, so self-defense, protecting the innocent, for example, if you know genocide's occurring, going to war to stop that genocide is a just cause. Restoring human rights wrongly denied, assisting an ally in their self-defense. So let's say you have an ally that you're close with and somebody attacks them. You might not be attacked, but it might be better in the long run to help your ally out. Um, Proportionate cause is the second thing. Proportionate cause means the good of going to war must outweigh the destruction and death that will be caused by warfare. In other words, going to war needs to prevent more evil and suffering than not going to war, you know, is the idea behind it. So proportionate cause. We count like, well, no, I'll cover that on the next slide. But let's say you calculate if we go to war with China, let's say, not, not like anybody's talking about that. And don't worry, I will not give you any classified information. But let's say in the calculation, we're like going to war with China will cost us 300,000 lives. And it'll cost them 15 million lives because we always, we always hurt our enemies more than they hurt us. That's just what we do. We're America. No, but anyhow, so... <laughs> So let's say that's what it's going to cost. If that is worse than what would happen by not going to war, you don't go to war. Let's say by not going to war, the worst that happens is Taiwan gets taken over and only a few thousand people die. Um, you know, and it doesn't affect international shipping and all that stuff that has second and third order effects. Well, then it would make sense. Now, this isn't worth going to war. But, but if Taiwan is a domino that then leads to the Philippines, that then leads to a whole bunch of other things um, and endangers our allies like Japan and South Korea and all that kind of stuff, then it starts stacking up and you, and you start thinking, proportionality speaking, it, if we don't go to war, the world ends up worse than if we do. So when you're trying to calculate the use ad bellum, you have to take into account proportionality. Um, and then, of course, right intention. Our motives for engaging warfare have to be noble. And what makes it noble has to be in line with the ethic of Christian love, um, such as going to war to right a wrong or restore a just peace. But we don't go to war for revenge or national pride, which when you think about World War I, it was all over national pride. We're going to prove our armies better than theirs. That is not just war. You know, you have to have a, a good reason to go to war. Right authority. Um, now, I'm going to make some people mad on this one. But the, the thing is, right authority, war can only be authorized by a legitimate government. It cannot be authorized by you in your garage or your little militia buddies out in the forest saying, you know what, I think our government is now pushed too far, you know, to the capital. You can't do that. That is not just war. God in Romans 13 gives Caesar the sword, not you. Okay, now if you work for Caesar, 
and Caesar gives you an M4, hey, there you go. Caesar tells you to go and kick in some doors. It's a right authority, but of course, hopefully these other, you know, points are in there as well. But war can only be authorized by a legitimate governing authority. It has to be a governing authority that we would recognize as fitting the criteria of Romans 13. But it also means that the proper governing authority has actual southern authority. Is our country complicates things because we're a federal system. We're under two governments. You're under the government of the United States of America and you're under the California state government because we're a federal system where individual states decided to come together and create a national union, but a union of what? Of states. So obviously the California state government is a government that has authority over you. You're a resident of California but you're a citizen of the United States. So here's my question. Can California declare war on Canada? No, they're not a just authority for that. Can the Congress of the United States of America declare war on Canada? Yes. So if Governor Newsom told you to go to war with Canada, you could just laugh and tell him to pound sand like he would ever do that. The dude's a dove. Um, but but uh, if, if the President of the United States, whether you like him or you don't, um, sends us somewhere, he could send us for 90 days without Congress's approval, uh, then we go. It's a legitimate, just authority. So anyhow, yeah, so right authority. Um, reasonable chance of success. This is an interesting one. There are some wars where all the other things are there, like you should go, but then you have no chance of winning. Like Denmark defeating the Nazis was not going to happen. And when they did show up on horseback to face tanks, there's a reason we still laugh at that today. Okay, there was no reasonable chance of success. Okay, so you know the initiation of warfare is going to bring violence, pain, and suffering. And so that cost to your people and theirs is only worth paying if you have the chance of succeeding in the war and Achieving the goals, which is to reset the peace and make things better than they would be if you didn't go to war. And then finally, the last part of use ad bellum is that it's got to be the last resort. You don't just go to war first. You've tried diplomatic means. You've tried all this stuff. And only after all those other things fail, then you go to war. Now, these other ones are a lot quicker. So let's say you have the just cause. Use ad bellum is met. The next part of just war tradition, Augustine's thinking, okay, you start at war. Well, then there has to be use in bellow, you know, justice in war. And there's only two primary criteria for this. First is discrimination, which I know like that's a, a four-letter cuss word in our culture because they don't understand that everybody discriminates. Like if I like Starbucks more than coffee bean or Dutch brothers, you know, I'm discriminating by going to Starbucks. But anyhow, everybody discriminates. And this is talking about a good kind of discrimination. This includes two key components, innocence and deliberate attack. So the first rule of just warfare is you don't kill the innocent. Just because, let's say, the knights are moving into Muslim lands, you don't kill Muslim women and children. You shouldn't. They're innocents. They're non-combatants. We're only attacking the war machine. That is the first thing. You have to discriminate against military targets and non-military targets. Now, in the modern world, with World War I and World War II, you have the concept of total war. It gets a lot more difficult now because it's like when we start bombing cities, you might say, well, now we're hitting civilians. But those civilians are all working in factories, making the bullets and the bombs that are being sent to the front. Now it gets more complicated. In the Crusades, not as complicated. So no excuse there. 
Um, so, yeah, we're supposed to discriminate between combatants and non-combatants. Um, and, yeah, that's the thing. So, you know, you, you do not deliberately attack them. Now, there is going to be collateral damage, right? There's going to be times where, you know, in taking out the terrorist, you also unfortunately blew up the school right next to them. You try to avoid that, but sometimes it happens. The, the second criteria of use in bellows proportionality this is similar to the proportionate cause you know how like you're thinking about okay is this war gonna do more damage than than not going to war well then we don't go to war same thing will this attack or this weapon be worse than if we don't use it key example of where this was debated was do we drop the atomic bombs on japan so a lot of people today would say absolutely unacceptable um, that was evil. We, we used nuclear weapons on an enemy. Now, those two bombs put together, um, both including its initial destruction and um, those who died of radiation over the years that followed, quarter of a million people, 250,000 people died because of those two bombs. However, our best estimates at the time said if we were to have invaded Japan, um, we could have lost 500,000 people um, of our own and Based on how Okinawa went, when we invaded Okinawa, we lost fifteen to 17,000 um, just in that one little island. Fifteen to 17,000, we killed 130,000 of them in one island because they were instructed to fight to the last man, woman, and child. So had we invaded Japan, the homeland, chances are we would have lost a lot. Okinawa showed us that, but we probably would have killed two, three million of them. So by dropping the bomb, as bad as it is to introduce nuclear weapons into human combat, it actually killed less of them than would have died had we invaded. And it saved, we didn't lose any lives in that. So does the dropping of those two nukes pass the test of proportionality? Yeah, it does. I wrote a research paper on this when I was in college. But anyhow, so and, and then the third thing, the third one is use Postbellum, what does post mean? After. after, so justice after war. And I, it would have been five slides to talk about that. This one just keeps getting more and more complicated. What does the world look like after that war? All I would say is Augustine would have kept it simple and said, either things are set back to how they were before the war, or they're even made a little better than they were before the war. But that's what should be done. So there has to be justice after the war, that we're not just trying to take revenge or, you know, uh, suck these people dry. But the Europeans, like, for example, World War II happened because at the end of World War I, France and Germany, or France and England said, let's make Germany pay for the whole thing. You know, and so then that made Germany broke, made them mad. It was a strike at their pride. And so when a short little guy with a mustache shows up and starts saying, you know, this, we could fix this, he had a willing audience. Um, and it was because there was no justice after World War I. It was vindictive on the part of the Allies. And so just a lot to be learned. Now, I know all that transcends the Crusades. This just war tradition is the European tradition uh, that comes from Christianity, and it is not always followed, but it's supposed to be. And it is the official position of the United States government. Um, and one of my jobs as a chaplain is if a commander 
especially in a tactical environment, is ever giving an order um, to do X, Y, or Z, the chaplain's job is to say, does this keep within the just war tradition? We're supposed to be the experts on it. And then, of course, the JAG, which are the lawyers, they're the ones who also then look at international law and say, yeah, you do this, buddy, you're going to be tried for war crimes. You know, you're going to hang. That's his job to tell them that. It's my job to say this is immoral. It's the JAG's job to say it's illegal. But all of that comes out of the just war tradition. So, Jumping back in our time machine, let's go back to the Crusades. Okay, so knowing that, that that is the theory that's supposed to drive European war, by the end of this, you could ask and answer, was this just war? <laughs> Anyhow, the Crusades were triggered when the Byzantine emperor, okay? The Byzantine emperor, Alexis Comenius, his uh, reign dates were 1081 to 1118. He asked the West to come in and help him. So keep in mind, this is like... 50 years after the split between East and West, where they excommunicated each other. We hate them, they hate us, all that. But those Seljuk Turks were the new rulers of the Muslim world, and they defeated the Byzantines and conquered almost all of Turkey. All that was really left of the Byzantine Empire was Constantinople itself. And these guys were at the gates of Constantinople, and that was all by 1071. And so pretty much Alexis Comenius said, you know, I know we've excommunicated each other and we don't get along, but we're all, we all think we're Christians. You're better than the Muslims. We know you guys have some pretty big armies and you've also shown that you've defeated some of the Muslim forces on your side of the world. Come help us out. And so what he was expecting was the West would send some troops so he could reconquer his lost land. Instead, he gets the first crusade. And this was not what he was expecting. So the Pope hears this. The Byzantine emperor has asked for the help of the West. And so uh, you have Pope Urban in 1095 in Claremont, France, uh, calls a council together. And Pope Urban's dates are 1088 to 1099. He gives this famous sermon. It was an inflamed speech, you know, that got everybody riled up. And, and, and more or less his point was, we have been fighting each other forever. Christian versus Christian, nation versus nation. Yeah, we are to unite. And you can just picture him giving this, this speech like, unite and turn, you know, all of, our for, or all of our efforts against the enemy. Those who've taken the Holy Land, those who have stopped our pilgrimages. Though, and he could just keep going on. Everybody's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then by the end, the whole crowd just erupts and starts chanting what became the motto of the First Crusade, which in Latin is, uh, is Deus Volt. Uh, Deus Volt, which means God wills it. God wills it. So, uh, and, and that's why when you watch uh, Kingdom of Heaven, the crusade movie with Orlando Bloom, you keep hearing them say, God wills it, God wills it. God, you know, that was just their, their, their motto. Uh, now, just a little bit of, uh, of, of background there. Uh, Pope Urban had other reasons to do this. There was another powerful group in Europe that picked a rival pope to him. So if he could rally all of Europe around a cause that he's kind of the champion of, that rallies them around him. And it worked. That rival pope, uh, pretty much, I couldn't even tell you who he is. He faded into obscurity. I'm sure the history books could tell you who he is, but I can't. Um, so Pope Urban secures his, his popedom, I guess, his popehood um, by this. But also he does rally Europe. He rallies Europe. And so, you know, Deus Volt, God, God wills it. And so that's one thing. So how it gets started, you end up with... Uh, you know, the East asking for help, and then the Pope riling people up. Well, you got to have the, the warriors, and 
Christian warriors in the West were different than they were a couple hundred years ago. You've all heard of knights. Well, this is when you have the era of knights. These aren't just warriors. This is a warrior class. This is the European equivalent of the Japanese samurai. It really is. Their job is nothing but killing. They are professional killers and professional protectors, and they got armor, very few vulnerabilities. They're part of the nobility. They are the ruling class. They, at the front of their name is sir and lord and stuff like that. So they are a warrior class whose main job was to fight and protect the land of the king and of the the higher nobles, like the dukes and all that. And so here's the thing. I, I mentioned back after Charlemagne's uh, kingdom fell, you, you ended up with feudalism, where Europe kind of broke into smaller pieces, which were ruled by noble lords, and they had their knights, and they're all fighting each other. And then eventually, by the time you get to this point, so you got a couple centuries of these guys fighting each other, perfecting their craft, uh, you know, mounted warfare, armored warfare, all that kind of stuff. So they perfect their craft, and then you have really the resurgence of, of nations by the time you get to this point. You got, you know, Normandy, you got France, you got a unified England. You, you got all this stuff, right? And so now you have these, these warrior classes under these nations. And I mentioned how you had the revivals of monasticism called the Cluny revivals in the 10th and 11th centuries where the monks got a lot holier. And I mentioned that last time when I was talking about the monastic orders. Well, as the Cluny revivals happened, and they said, we also have to reform these knights. We have to channel their violence. Yes, we need their violence because there's a Christian theology of violence, as I mentioned. But we have to channel it. So they developed at Cluny a moral code called chivalry. You've probably heard of this, you know, being chivalrous and, and all that. Now, the word chivalry just is the French word for cavalry. You know, these were the, the mounted warriors. But the chivalric values were courage, justice, chastity, sobriety, loyalty, and prudence. I mean, think about what those mean. You, you put your life on the line. You're brave. But you're doing it for what? Just causes, not your own personal whatever. Chastity, you're not out there raping and pillaging. You're loyal to your wife. Sobriety, you don't go into war drunk. Okay, you got to be sober and minded, sober everything. Loyalty, loyalty to Lord and land. Loyalty to king and country. Loyalty to God. And then finally, prudence, being wise in what you do. And so, of course, this is where the special ceremony would come, where the knight's sword is blessed, and maybe a monarch would tap them somewhere and say, I deem you and declare you knight whatever rise, you know, kind of like Palpatine does to Anakin. Um, but this, this is how it was, you know, back then. And so when this ritual was done, there's an oath. Your sword is now to defend churches, women, orphans, the poor, and the servants of God, meaning the clergy. And you're called upon to fight injustice where you find it and the enemies of Christianity. See, those are things that exist in this world that make flourishing difficult. And there's a reason God said Caesar has the sword for a reason. So this was an idea to take this violence that the warrior class has, but to channel it for what's just and for what's good. Because if you don't have something like that, then you end up with chaos. You end up with drug lords and gangs and child armies and all that kind of stuff that you see in certain parts of the world today. So this makes sense. And so it was through chivalry that the Catholic Church then Christianized the Knights of Western Europe. And, and what's interesting is, um, here's how this relates to the crusade. Chivalry took, 
it, it combined two different things. Fighting, which knights loved. I love to fight. I can kill something, right? But you just can't kill your neighbor. Just can't kill, you know, average day Joe. But you can kill those who are trying to wipe Christianity out, right? You could kill those who are trying to hurt widows and orphans and the vulnerable. So again, what do I love? I love fighting. But what do I love? I love Christianity. I love Christendom. I love Lord and country and land. And so I could fight for that. So again, it, it's it's pointing it to the to what would be considered the right direction. And just before I move on, just you know, looking at this this picture of this knight. There's not a lot of vulnerabilities with that armor. I had to read a book when I took an Islamic civilization class uh, called uh, The Crusades from Muslim Through Muslim Eyes, or Arab Eyes, written by an Islamic chronicler that lived during, I think, the Third or Fourth Crusade. And uh, he mentioned how hard it was to kill the knights. You know, one knight could take out so many of them. And so they said, we had to find out, we had to get them off their horse, which was not easy. Then you have to pin them down, which is not easy. And then you have to open their, their visor plate and stab them in the face. That's pretty much how you're going to kill them because they're so well armored. So it's just uh, one night was very hard for them to defeat. And again, these were guys who knew how to fight with all that stuff on. Now, uh, I, one more thing, and then eventually we'll get, not eventually, one more thing, and we will get to um, the first crusade. Before every battle... Crusaders had to confess their sins to a priest and take communion. This gives them an incentive to fight because what Pope Urban promised is complete pardon from all the temporal penalties of your sins. In other words, there's some sins you got on you that are going to send you to purgatory in Catholic theology. And, they, and the Pope said, you confess your sins to a priest, you take the Lord's Supper, and then you go into battle, all that's gone. You don't have to worry about purgatory. Um, You know, but there's still the, well, what if I'm so bad that I go to hell, you know? So during the second crusade, you're going to have Pope Eugenius. Um, He was the student of Bernard of Clairvaux, if you remember. Um, The second crusade is 1145 to 1153. Pope Eugenius III is going to promise eternal life. You are automatically saved if you go fight the Turks in the Holy Land. And the second crusade, if I remember, I don't know... I think the second crusade was to retake Jerusalem, um, but I might have that wrong because I know the third crusade was definitely to retake Jerusalem. Yes, yeah, the third crusade. Don't listen to what I'm saying here. But either way, Jerusalem was in danger. You want a spot to heaven? Go fight. You know, that's essentially what the Muslims believe about jihad. Um, by the time you get to the third crusade, you'd be granted an indulgence for all sins even if you hire a knight to go crusade for you. Well, I don't want to get killed, but I got money. So I'm going to send Aaron. He'll go fight. And the Pope's like, all right, you paid for him. You sent him. All your sins are forgiven, buddy. Like, Aaron, make us proud. You know, um, I'm going to heaven regardless. You know, hope to see you again someday. So obviously these were incentives to raise big armies to to go and, and fight these crusades. Now, completely unrelated to the incentive side, I just didn't, I didn't want to make a, a slide for this bottom part. From the first crusade to the last, there's always going to be a trickling of knights and warriors going to... So I guess what you could say is if the crusades last 200 years, but you're saying, well, I've heard there's like seven or eight crusades. Yes, 
But the fighting never stopped. It was a constant 200 years of fighting. But what would happen is, you know, the fighting would just be the normal fighting. You're in foreign land. Occasionally people are going to try to take it back. You fight them off. Occasionally you got some knights going over there. So if that's the case, then why do we say there's a first, a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth crusade? It's because in that 200 years, there will be some points where there's going to be like a surge, where it's like you're going to have fervor in Europe again, the crusader spirit. And it's not just a few knights trickling over. you got whole armies now going back over for some main purpose, a, 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 a very definable goal. And so, for example, the third crusade is after the West loses Jerusalem. So that's when King Richard, the Lionheart, says, I'm going to go over and I'm going to get Jerusalem back. And a lot of knights followed. That's, that constitutes a third crusade, right? But don't think like there was points in this time where they weren't fighting. There's always fighting. But the crusades are when there's big fighting. So prelude to the first crusade. This one, it's a tragic tale. Um, and it's not really a tale, it's a true story. Um, so prior to the First Crusade, 1096 to 1099, a pathetic episode occurred called the People's Crusade. A French monk known as Peter the Hermit, his life dates 1050 to 1115, he declared that God granted him visions. And he was a magnificent preacher because he was so popular that people everywhere wanted to follow him. Um, in, in fact, uh, um, historians say that whenever he would go to a town and preach, you know, especially when he would preach the necessity of the crusade, he said people would weep for their sins, they would repent, they'd forgive their enemies, they'd restore their marriages, and they'd give a lot of money to the church. So church liked uh, Peter the Hermit's preaching. But he preached the idea of a crusade. It's time for us to take this land back from the Muslims. Uh, and again, very popular. But he's like, we don't need no stinking knights. He assembles an army of 20,000 paupers, poor peasants that don't know anything about fighting because he saw little value in weapons, training, or discipline. He's like, the Lord is going to fight this battle for us. And of course, I'm sure you could guess where this goes. So he, he claims to see visions that uh, they're going to have victory over Muslims in the Holy Land. So he and his ragtag army march to Palestine to the Holy Land, and they go through southern Germany. And they're so hyped up on defeating the infidel that they kill as many Jews as they can on the way. They massacred thousands. This is the first instance that we know of, of a direct anti-Semitic pogrom against Jews in medieval Europe. It will not be the last. But this group, thinking God is going to be with them and grant them victory, thought that one way to gain his favor was massacring Jews. And that's what replacement theology leads to, just to let you know. When you think God is done with Israel and has replaced them, then yeah, they're expendable. But when you realize that they're the apple of his eye, there's consequences. And there's going to be consequences here. Because when this ragtag army crosses the Bosphorus and hits Asia Minor, and they arrive there, they were instantly massacred by the Turkish army. The Turkish army is like, what is this? And they just rode over them. And, and killed them. More of them were massacred than the Jews they massacred. So honestly, I think, you know, they, they got what they deserved on that. Now, this is going to help the crusade. How? Well, first, let me just say that Peter the Hermit escaped. That's not how it helps it, but he escapes. He lives to come back another day, and he'll actually triumphantly march into Jerusalem in 1099 when it's taken. Um, but 
he got a lot of people killed with his foolishness here. But the reason this particular episode is significant is because it caused the Turks to believe Western Christians were no threat. Like, that's what they have to, oh gosh, we could go on vacation. It only takes a couple hundred of us to kill these guys. They suck, you know, and he had no idea. He was killing peasants. This Turkish ruler had no idea what it was going to be like when knights actually show up. So Peter's blunder actually causes the Muslims to let their guard down, which they are going to definitely regret. So mustering of the crusaders then, you know, you have that happen. Europe's outraged. You have the pilgrimages being cut off. Europe's outraged. Pope Urban gives his fiery speech. Europe's outraged. So now the crusaders are mustering. And of course, the Pope's speech, this is a crusade, which cross is in the root of that. So put crosses on your shields, sew it into your capes. Our enemy's going to know that this is in the name of the cross. And so unlike Peter's soldiers, the knights of the first crusade were impressive. They just were. Um, they were, in a, and by the way, their leaders were an assembly of Western Europe's greatest nobles. One of William the Conqueror's sons, Robert of Normandy, uh, son of Henry I of France, Hugh of uh, Vermandoy. I don't know how you say that. I know how to say Hugh. Um, a descendant of Charlemagne, Godfrey of Bullion was there. And he actually becomes the first uh, ruler of Jerusalem once the Europeans gain it. So kind of interesting that a descendant of Charlemagne himself is the first Christian ruler of Jerusalem. Um, and then you have a chaplain, uh, Adamer, which was Bishop of Puy. He was Pope Urban's official representative. And then you had a powerful Norman named Tancred. And so you got these guys and you got some other guys, but these were all big shots. Some of them exemplified chivalry with excellence. Some of these guys were rapscallions. Um, I know Tancred was a righteous man. I know Godfried was a righteous man. I, I don't know about some of these other guys. But here's what they all knew how to do. They knew how to fight. They knew how to lead forces. And the Muslims were going to be in for an unpleasant surprise. However, there was one major weakness to this all. The Pope did not appoint a unified commander. He didn't say Godfrey's in charge or Tancred's in charge or anything like that. So he did not pick anybody specific to be in charge. And when you have no unity of effort, that because in military training, not just training, but meaning in the high level strategy of stuff, you have to have what's called command and control or mission command, and you also have to have unity of effort, where authority has to come from a single source. Um, you know, and then with that, it could be delegated, but it still goes back to that, that source. That way you have a unity of effort. Because if you, and I'm sure it's the same thing with fighting a fire. There's going to be a point guy there that says, this is how we're doing it. Otherwise, if everybody does their own thing, there's no unity of effort, and it doesn't, it, you know, it, it doesn't end up working. War is the same, same way. There was no... Unity of effort. The fact that the West wins the first crusade is amazing because um, some of this is going to sound like Keystone Cop stuff. It's just the fact that these guys were great warriors. That, that's a big part of it. But the lack of unity of effort is going to be problematic. So anyhow, the crusading armies, they all gather in Constantinople in the winter and spring of 1096 to 1097. It's huge. Lower estimates range. Uh, well, there's a range. So the lower estimates are 50,000 warriors. The high estimates, 300,000. I doubt it was 300,000, but let's say it was a lot higher than 50,000. Let's say it was just 100,000. You got 100,000 armored warriors that were Normans, Franks, Germans, Lombardians, English, and Burgund Burgundians. The, 
Byzantines never saw anything like this. And the emperor was terrified, the eastern emperor. When he saw this force, he's like, whoa, I asked for help just because, you know, I wanted to push these Turks back. These guys are more dangerous than even the Turks. I've never seen anything like this. And it really showed him Western Christendom was vastly more powerful and dangerous than its Eastern counterpart. In fact, he's like, oh, when are you guys going to go fight? He wanted them out of his city because he knew if they turned on him, there was nothing he could do to stop them at that point. It was terrifying. And one thing that, that helps them, because again, without their unity of effort, this would have been uh, an entire disaster, but there were some things that worked in their favor. For example, the Seljuk uh, Turkish Empire broke apart into warring factions, so the knights only had to beat them uh, one at a time. Um, so, yeah. Now, the First Crusade officially begins uh, when the forces cross the Bosphorus. From Constantinople, they have to cross the Bosphorus into Asia Minor. And each commander had to find his own way there and come up with his own fighting plan because there was no unified commander. So you got a bunch of smaller armies all doing their own thing. Again, doesn't work. But anyhow, 1097, they make it from Constantinople to Iconium. And their first stop along the way was the Turkish capital of Nicaea, where the Council of Nicaea was. But that was the capital of the Seljuk Turks. And it was the gateway to Asia Minor. And the Christians took it without a fight. Why? Turkish emperor put his men on R&R saying, yeah, you don't have to be too alert. Fact is, these Christians are weak. You don't have to worry. And then they show up and they take their capital without a fight. Turkish emperor was pretty dumb. He had to learn his lesson from that. So he summons all the Turks. They gather around the city thinking they will be able to take it back. And so the crusaders lop off the heads of the citizens of the city and then catapult them out to the Turkish soldiers. And so the Turkish soldiers lost heart. Imagine, you know, you're on R&R, but it's your wife and kids that are back in the city. And then you show up and surround it and their heads land on your lap. Now, let me ask you, is that use in bello, justice in war? No, it's not, because that's uh, targeting civilians um, for a psychological effect. So the Turks backed off so that the Christians would stop killing their citizens. And then, and then the Turks also figured, well, we could retreat out into the plains. We could have a pitched battle because we probably outnumber these guys. So and we got time. We know their goal is Jerusalem. They're not going to stay in Nicaea forever, so let's go out to the plains and set this uh, pitched battle. Now, by the time the Christians move out from Nicaea to, to get to Iconium and all that, not even all the Christian forces had left Constantinople yet. Again, no unity of effort. It's like we're leaving to this pitch battle before the rest of the Christian forces are even there. This could be disastrous. You actually have three separate uncoordinated Christian armies that were, um, that were marching across Asia Minor or Turkey. And so the Turks, and by the way, that's why Asia Minor is called Turkey today because the Turks took it over. It has nothing to do with the bird. Um, that's a North American bird that they didn't know about yet. But anyhow, the Turks engaged the first army. So the first army to meet them in the field was outnumbered. And the Turks were like, oh, we got these guys. And so, so pretty much they engaged them. It's a vicious fight, but they were starting to win because they had greater numbers. But then as it looks like they're going to gain the day, you look at the horizon, 
and the second of the three armies just happens to pour in. It looks like a coordinated plan of brilliance. It wasn't. It was dimwittery that just happened to work out. And so then the second army shows up and it evens it up. And then as the Muslims think, well, let's not retreat. We might have a chance. Then the third army pours over. And then just at that point, the Turks got, got walloped, you know. Um, and so, it, again, it looked, they would assume like these Christians must have a brilliant commander <laughs> because this, this was a stroke of genius. And really, it wasn't that at all. Um, and the Muslims realized these guys are not like those ragtag peasants we killed. We've never fought anything like these knights. And again, that, that Muslim chronicler that wrote about the Crusades, I mean, I read that 25, 26 years ago. Haven't read it since, but, but I remember specifically um, just his description of, of how they saw the knights and how difficult the knights were for them, and just the psychological effect of them. This first battle is where, where that became apparent. You know, like these are not going to be easy guys to beat. And so the Turks lost their picked, pitched battle at uh, uh, Dory Lamb, and then the Christians were able to push to Iconium. And so the next big thing is you have to get to Antioch. Once you got Nicaea and Iconium, you've got to walk across all of Turkey and get to Syria. When you get to Syria, then there's the city of Antioch. And uh, that's the city where Paul and Barnabas founded a church, and it was really the church that opened up missionary activity. Um, so you got two possible ways to get to Antioch. It's a long route. you got one that's the long way that goes around the mountains. And then you got a short, narrow path through these mountains called the Syrian Gate. But it's so narrow that you could only march so many soldiers in at a time. So let's say you got an army of like 10,000. It doesn't matter. You're only going to have ranks so wide, a much smaller force could just stop you, you know, in your tracks. And so you're very vulnerable if you try to go through the Syrian gate, even though it's faster. But the Christian army knew that we can't go through the Syrian gate. We'll be sitting ducks. So they go the long way. And, uh, and when the, the Turkish, the, the remaining Turks have their scouts, they're looking, they're like, oh, you know, the army's going around the mountains just like we thought. So we're going to pitch another battle outside of Antioch for them. So they were there to meet them. And they're like, and this makes sense, only a fool would go through the Syrian gate. Well, unbeknownst to anybody, an ra- independent rabble of Christians doing their own things decided to go through the Syrian gate anyway. You know, so the Turks aren't watching it because they got their big army in front of Antioch waiting to meet the big Christian army. The big Christian army shows up and they engage. And then out of the, the little narrow Syrian gate comes this other army that attacks them. Again, it looks like a brilliant stroke of genius, but it wasn't. It wasn't. And so then the the soldiers of Antioch realize, oh, man, this is not going our way. So they retreat back into Antioch. Um, And this is going to be a vicious siege that lasts lasts eight months. it just, it just is. So the Turks are being attacked from different angles. They retreat into Antioch. You've got this, this vicious siege. Um, and uh, I'm telling you, just the Christian victories bewilder me at times here because of the lack of unity of effort. Um, so as they're besieging Antioch, there was an Armenian Christian that lived in the city. And so he secretly opened the gates, which made it to where the Christian army was able to go in. And they took the city. 
1098. Um, the remaining Turkish defenders in the city locked themselves in the citadel, which is a tower, a fortified tower at the center of the city, and the Christians could not get in to kill them. So you have this, this remnant Turkish army still in the center of the city, but the Christians have the rest of the city, and then three days later, the largest Turkish army they faced showed up and surrounded the city. So now the Christians have this giant Turkish army outside of the city, and they still have some Turkish soldiers in the middle of the city. They're sandwiched. This looked disastrous. And the Christians were running out of food. They were facing total destruction. Um, they're like, we're surrounded. We're outnumbered. We're going to run out of food. We're going to run out of water. Um, you know, maybe this whole idea of a crusade was a bad idea. So they're starting to doubt. And then, of course, you're going to have another very interesting event. Uh, and by the way, the Normans couldn't supply them here. Antioch is not near any waterway um, that, the, that the ships could get to. So they, there's nothing they could do. Uh, they, things were looking bleak. But you had a lot of chaplains among them. And one of them is going to change the outcome. His name is Peter Bartholomew. And he announced he had a vision. Everybody's ready to give up. He's like, wait, God has given me a vision on the very ground where we are standing is the spear that pierced the side of Christ when he was on the cross. The relic of all relics that Christians had yet to find, but the one they wanted to find. They even had a name for it, the spear of destiny. If you have this spear, you cannot lose. And he said, the vision told me it's there. And so then he's like, start digging. And no joke, they start digging and they find a first century Roman spearhead. And they're like, ah, you know, and they start, they start going crazy. They're like, we got it. Now, Chances are, archaeologically speaking, because it was a very important Roman city, if they kept digging, they might have found more. But they found one pretty quickly. They're like, this has got to be it. And then they're like, this is the sign we've been waiting for. We asked God for a sign. He gave us a sign. Open the gates. And so the Muslims are just sitting out there having a picnic, thinking like this siege is going to last a while. The gates open, and the Christian army's charging them, screaming. And they're like, what the heck? And then they start killing them, you know, because if you think you're invincible, you're going to fight like you're invincible. And so then the Muslims are getting walloped, and they just flee. And the interesting thing, the sad thing, is when they flee, um, they left their wives and their children in all the tents that were outside the city. And so the, the crusaders killed the women. They did, not, they did not assault them sexually, but they, you know, impaled them all with spears. And then they would say, look, this shows our moral superiority. The Muslims would have ravaged our women. We just killed theirs. And it's again... Back to Augustine's just war theory. Was this use in bello? Was this justice in war? No. They were attacking non-combatants, women. And that just, just wasn't right. But the fact was, this Peter Bartholomew's vision and just the fact that they found that spearhead so hyped these guys up, they won in an impossible situation. So they lived to fight another day. And by the way, the Turks, they're, they're done at this point. You know, the, the Turkish army is defeated. Um, now they're just dealing with Arabs because that's what is in the Palestine area. So after Antioch, it's to Jerusalem. So we're getting close to the end of the first crusade to Jerusalem, right? We're going to take Jerusalem. And so uh, they waited another year to reach Jerusalem. They stayed for a while in Antioch. But even in that year, famine, pestilence, battle, it reduced their numbers down to only 20,000 men. So taking Jerusalem is not going to be easy. And again, hard for them to get resupplied at Antioch. 
There's not a lot between Antioch and Jerusalem. So they had to ask and answer a question strategically. Do we just do the long march and go straight to Jerusalem and, and take it? Or do we first go to the port city of Acre? Um, because if we could get Acre, then the Normans could resupply us and bring a lot of soldiers. But again, Acre's the best port in that part, you know, in, in all of Palestine. Um, so it's going to be well defended. If we take it, great. We're resupplied, but if we get stuck in a long siege there, we're probably never going to be able to take Jerusalem. So maybe it's better just risking it and going straight to Jerusalem. You know, a tough question they had to answer. And by the way, uh, Acre today is called Akka. It's still there, and it's an important city uh, even there, uh, even today, still there. So again, a lot of them wanted to take Acre, but the majority of leaders did not want a major battle with the Arabs if it was unnecessary. They could bypass it, take Jerusalem, and then at a later date when their strength is rebuilt from Jerusalem, they could take Acre. And that's what they're eventually going to do. So yeah, they're going to decide that we need to, let's not fight these Arabs here, let's just go. Okay, so let me know when we're good. They believe back then that the one who's right, who God gives a vision to, can walk on hot coals and be unharmed. And so Peter Bartholomew was so convinced that he had this vision that he thought for sure that he would walk on these coals unburned. And everybody would be like, oh, Peter, you know, and then they would go and attack Acre. He walks on the hot coals, his feet catch on fire, he falls down and burns and dies of his wounds, okay? And so the military commanders were very pleased, like, all right, we don't have to worry about this idiot, you know? Yeah, they were happy with what happened in Antioch, but this guy's visions were not very strategic, and so um, the decision was settled. Peter died, we go to Jerusalem. And so just a, a couple pictures of the the ordeal by fire, you know, here's a painting of him walking through the fire and then him dying in it. Unfortunately, uh, I put Dwight Schrute also walking on um, in the office when he walks on Michael's coals of fire and then he falls down and starts burning as well. If this was PowerPoint, this, would, this was a GIF. It would be showing him walk on it and start falling. But pro presenter doesn't know how to run a GIF, apparently. Um, but yeah, Peter Bartholomew died and it's just very interesting that the same, pretty much walking on the coals and falling down and burning. That's what happened in an office episode. Pretty, pretty funny. So, Siege of Jerusalem. The hilly geography of Jerusalem, and now that I've been there, I could tell you, yeah, it is hilly. You're standing on the Mount of Olives, then there's the Kidron Valley, and then it's just a hill back up to, into Jerusalem where um, you then end up on the Temple Mount, which is the high point. It's a very hilly area. And then all around it, between there and Bethlehem, a lot of hills. So Jerusalem is an easy place to defend as a fortress, hence Mount Zion. And a certain hermit, so, you know, Peter Bartholomew's death in it, you know, uh, cause these hermits to shut up at all. So a hermit's like, if we attack the city on a certain day, certain hour, victory will be guaranteed. They listened and the attack failed. And then another hermit's like, no, 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 we have to walk around the city barefoot and blow trumpets. And by this point, you know, the commanders are like, we're not doing that. But then some people took their boots off and did it. Um, and it did not help them win. So again, these hermits just don't know what they're talking about, but they are funny. Uh, Jerusalem was taken through a normal siege. 
It's going to take six weeks. It's going to be a tough fight. They're going to use ladders, grappling hooks, all the stuff you've seen in the Lord of the Rings movies, you know, when they're attacking a, a, a fort. Same type of thing. Um, same thing in Kingdom of Heaven, that movie. They're going to use catapults. And uh, it's, yeah, it's going to be a, an interesting uh, siege. Now, one thing, they do use a new development called, uh, like, you know how they have these towers, these siege towers, where it'd have a lot of soldiers in them. The orcs used the same thing in Lord of the Rings. And you'd push that towards the wall, and then a ramp opens up and lands in the archer's window. Because these uh, these castles, they had, um, they, they had um, you know, you would have, I guess, stone, and then this little rectangle area where archers could shoot, and then other stones, right? So that's where they could hide behind, so they could dodge your arrows, but then they could shoot from there. And so the idea of the siege towers push it right up to one of those gaps and drop the ramp. Well, what a lot of people in sieges would do is when they see those towers coming, they had stones, and they'd fill that gap up, those gaps. And so then the ramps couldn't work. And so these crusaders put wheels on the towers that could move laterally. And so they would push up and push up and get real close to it. And then these guys would put the stones up in the little gap saying, ha-ha. And they're like, now to the right. And then it would go right, right to the next gap and then drop the ramp and they'd get in. And so it was a genius little creative innovation. And uh, they were able to breach the walls on a lot of different places all at once. They got inside the city, opened the gates, and it was a bloodbath. They did kill every Muslim and Jew that was in Jerusalem, slaughtered them all. So again, is there use in bellow, justice in war? No, the Crusaders were not following just war tradition um, as, as they should have. After they took Jerusalem, they're like, let's go take Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born. And it only took a hundred of them to conquer Bethlehem. So that is the end of the first crusade. They succeeded. They took Jerusalem. And, uh, so the military results of the first crusade were the restoration of Western Asia minor to Byzantine rule. They did give it to the emperor. And then you had the establishment of four independent crusader states in Syria and Palestine. And, and so, you know, it's kind of hard to see um, with this bulb, but those looking online could see it just fine. So pretty much you have the four states, crusader states were the county of Edessa, the principality of Antioch, the county of Tripolis, and then the most important, the crown jewel, the kingdom of Jerusalem, which was called, nicknamed the kingdom of heaven, hence the title of that movie with Orlando Bloom in it. Talking about this totally makes me want to watch that movie. I'm going to. But anyhow, um, so these Latin kingdoms, these were called Latin kingdoms because their rulers belonged to the Latin-speaking Catholic Church, not the Eastern Church. Uh, and the creation of these Latin crusader states, it only made the split between East and West worse. I mean, you couldn't think it would get worse. You wouldn't think it'd get worse after 1054, but it does. Wherever the Westerners conquered, they seized the Eastern churches that were there, those basilicas, and then they set up their own Western bishops and demanded that Eastern believers submit to them. They're like, we're taking your churches. We're not giving these to you. These are part of the Catholic Church. And they treated them harshly. And so here's how bad it had to have been. The oppressive treatment of the Eastern Orthodox Christians by the Crusaders eventually caused the Orthodox believers native to the Middle East to join the Muslims to throw out the Crusaders. So they're the ones who asked for the Crusaders to come over there and help them. But the Crusaders are so bad in their governing of them that they want the Muslims back. And they will help the Muslims to win in subsequent wars. So 
In conclusion, the First Crusade was a violent military conflict in which the Western Christendom took back much of Asia Minor, Asia Minor, Syria, and Jerusalem. The height of the Christian success was the First Crusade. It doesn't get any better than this. It's the next 200 years. It's just trying to hold on to some of it. Um, and the crazy thing is this was all achieved despite a lack of mission command and unity of effort. It's just, yeah, I mean, I chalk it up to awesome warriors, but not good planning. And a couple lucky monks is just the best way to put it. And one that was barbecued. But anyhow, by the measurement of just war, it is very questionable whether or not the Crusades were justified. Even if the just or use ad bello, meaning did they have a good reason to go to war? I think so. I think all the use ad bello, bello was there. But the use in bello, no stinking way. Um, they, they were behaving just miserably in the war. The chivalry was not being honored by a lot of them. Politically and militarily, though, I don't feel bad for the Muslims because they just received a taste of their own medicine. But theologically, there was nothing about the Crusades that can properly be called Christian by any biblical standard. And so that is all 